Well, good evening. For those that don't know me, I'm Tian de Klerk. I'm married to Sana. We have six lovely children. And uh, it's a real blessing to be able to share with you here about the work of Sajra and also share with you the Word of God in a, in a couple of, of minutes. Uh, Sajra is a very unique ministry, actually. We've heard time and time again from this pulpit proclaimed how ministry should really stream out of the church. The church should be the entity that plant churches and, and minister to God's people and share the gospel with the lost. But there's some instances actually where parachurch organizations can be very helpful. Sajra is one of them. Sajra stands for the Soldiers and Airmen Scripture Reading Association. Uh, they have existed for about 185 years or about thereabouts. Um, and it's amazing that this ministry is, is still about, you know, that we still have the opportunity to, inside the military context, share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with soldiers and airmen in the United Kingdom. It's a real privilege. Um, there's 12 scripture readers who do this throughout the UK. Uh, we've got one in, in Northern Ireland. We used to have one in Germany, but the forces have drawn back from there. So all the rest of the scripture readers are now based in the United Kingdom, well, in, 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 in the main, main, mainland area of the United Kingdom. And we, we, we work with mainly with the initial trade training basis, but also a few, few field bases throughout the UK. I myself work with the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers uh, in their training facility, which is down in Lynham. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge, huge base. Actually, we've got at any given time well over 2,000 personnel on the base. And there's a large flow through, of, uh, flow through of soldiers that come through that unit, so much so that it's roughly about 3,000 soldiers that move through that base every, every year. You know, so a lot of opportunity to say the, share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with soldiers in that context. Um, I have worked with them for about 12 years now. You know, and over that time, the ministry has changed. In recent years, about two years ago, due to criteria, so our situation changed in the chaplaincy center. I worked there with two chaplains. And where we used to get about five hours in the initial week with the soldiers that arrive on camp, that got winded down to about 45 minutes where the chaplaincy team had opportunity to just tell soldiers about what we do. So during this, I went to the CEO and I asked him, sir, could we provide a survey for the soldiers to kind of just get a little bit of better idea how we can serve them in that context? And he said that was fine. Um, and on the survey, we placed five questions. We asked them what faith they are. So if they were of another faith, we could put them in contact with those chaplains as well. The military have to provide chaplains for every faith. But then the next question I, I asked is, if, if, if they were Christians, were they baptized or not? Would they like to be baptized or not? And then the, final, the, 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 the fourth question I asked them, uh, I asked them whether they would like to know anything more about Christianity. And if so, doing provide a phone number so we can get in contact with them. You know, over the last two years, I have filled my time up completely with soldiers who said that they wanted to know something more about Christianity. You know, it's a really unique base because uh, 
because it's trade training, it's all the guys who become vehicle mechanics, you know, aircraft technicians, electronics technicians, uh, armorers, stuff like that, technical trades in the army. Because of the nature of the trades there, you'd always have soldiers that are waiting to get loaded on a different course. And during these times, uh, I, could, I could meet with them. The unit sees it as a benefit, because sometimes you become aware of, of, of welfare issues that the welfare team haven't picked up, and so doing, you can filter that through the chain. And as a result, they see a scripture reader as a benefit to the unit. But above all, the scripture reader's main prerogative is to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with these soldiers. And the way I would normally do it is if these guys have said they want to know a little bit more about it, I'll meet with them and I'll ask them if they would like to start reading through the Bible with me. And I'll pick a book depending on the person's background. I'll pick either a book like one of the Gospels if they don't have a lot of previous knowledge or else the book of Romans if they have some previous knowledge. And we'll just read through that and address every verse as it, as it comes before them. You know, and it's tremendous to see how the Word has changed people's lives in, in, in Lynham. It's truly a magnificent opportunity, and, and I would ask you, brothers and sisters, I, I haven't got any literature yet today. We haven't received our new prayer letters yet, but on Sunday, once I've received them, I'll bring them in and make sure they're on the back of the table so you can avail yourself of some of the prayer letters and start praying for some of these soldiers. You know, we, we, we can share the gospel with them, but we know it's only the Lord through the Holy Spirit that convict these, can convict these men of sin and turn them to, to the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so please, please, when I put the prayer letters there, do take them and pray for some of these soldiers that we're ministering to. Now, you know, being in the army, you're often, often engaged with, with people who have various opinions of, over current affairs and stuff like that. I think in the last couple of months, for me personally, uh, in the last year or so since COVID happened, it has become all that more poignant to turn the conversations to the gospel when I speak with soldiers, because people are realizing that this world doesn't have all the answers that they think it, it, it would pretend to have in, in, a, in a circular context. And, you know, as, as we have focused on on, on, on all the reflections that we as Christians have done ourselves, we've seen that things are appearing to be more difficult, more darker. You speak to people, and all over the place, Christians especially would say, you know, I think it's about time for the Lord to return. Or I think it looks like it's the Lord's turn is imminent. But what we realize, Scripture has always proclaimed to us, that we should be ready because the Lord is coming like a thief in the night when no man knoweth. And therefore we should be ready for our Savior will come in a time that nobody expects. But in Titus chapter 2, it reminds us that we should, as Christians, always look for the blessed hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So regardless what we think circumstances around us dictate, we should be looking to our Savior in every situation. Now, with that in mind, I want to share with you a passage in the book of Hosea. If you take your Bibles and turn to that with me, for those of you who are maybe new to the Bible, it is the book just after Daniel, and it's uh, close to the end of the Old Testament. 
And we're going to look at chapter 14. Now, to just paint a little bit of a contextual background of what's happening here in this passage, the book of Hosea is one of those books that perhaps in the most vivid way possible uh, paint for us a picture of the story of redemption. Actually, in the first three chapters, we see that this prophet is told by God to marry a wife, a wife who was a prostitute. And the, the prophet obeys the Lord and he marries her and they have children. And after he's married this, 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 this wife, she becomes unfaithful. She takes all the good gifts that the prophet has given her and she becomes unfaithful and sells herself into prostitution again. So you can imagine how this prophet's heart must have been broken. But yet the Lord speaks to this prophet and challenges this prophet and tells this prophet to go and buy back this wife. To go and purchase again, not just only go and forgive her, but to purchase her back unto himself and to love her again. And that in itself becomes a wonderful picture of God's redeeming love to us. As we consider, consider those Uh, Those three chapters, we see that actually the book of Hosea moves on in the next couple of chapters, all the way up to chapter 12, really, painting us a picture of all of, of, of Israel's unfaithfulness. It brings to the forefront their fallenness, their, their, their hypocrisy and all these things. But in the midst of it, it gives glimmers of hope as it presents, uh, a Messiah that will come and save this people. And that that goes up to chapter 12. And then in chapter 12 through to 14, it's basically a summary of all those chapters. And in chapter 14, we then truly see what the Lord is about to do for this people. And so let's read together in chapter 14. Follow along with me, please. 14 from verse 1, we'll read to the end, but we're going to focus mainly on the first four verses there. And the word of the Lord says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Usher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the works of our hands. You are our gods. For indeed the, father, the fatherless findeth find mercy. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew upon Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his and he smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, 
What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. Who is wise and he is understanding these things? Prudent and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the just shall walk in them. But the transgressor shall fall therein. Heavenly Father, we ask as we now come to your word, Lord, we ask that you would open it up to us. We ask that your spirit would help us to understand, give us insight, and by your grace, Father, form us more and more into the image of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Help us, Lord, to see the Savior in the context of what is presented here to us, that we may glorify him above all names. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if we look at that first verse, we, we see that it speaks of Israel. But often in the Old Testament, we can, we can, we can take the... the uh, rebukes and the blessings that God ascribes to Israel and try and apply them in the context of the New, church, the New Testament church as we delineate certain principles from these, from these truths that are presented to us. And one of the things that the Lord says to Israel here is he rebukes them initially in light of everything that was going on. We need to understand that this is at a period in Israel's history. It's about 200 years after the northern kingdom has split from the southern kingdom. It was a time when wickedness was so rife. They were ruled by probably the most wicked king that ever ruled over Israel, Jeroboam II. And all of those things started affecting the people of the land. And they turned to every idol imaginable. And it got to the point where the Lord said, I will now do something about this. And ultimately, the Lord's discipline would lead the people away in captivity. But God's grace will still be upon them as he promised to them this renewed hope that we find here in chapter 14. But the first thing he reminds his people of is that they have fallen, fallen by their iniquities. You know, I think as, as, as Christians, we often get convicted by the Spirit of God when we think upon our own life and try and discern sin that may be there or rebellion that we might see in our day-to-day -day lives before the Lord. We know that these things shouldn't be so, but still often we see sin in the life of Christians. And, and, and we can reflect in that, and we can often talk to other brothers, confess our sin to one another and pray. But brothers and sisters, when we go out on the street to share the gospel, or when we go into barracks room to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, do we honestly in every circumstance have a full grasp, a full grasp and understanding of how vile our sin is before a holy God? Do we fully understand the severity of our sin, our fallenness before a holy God? Turn with me for a moment to Romans chapter 3. It's that very very familiar chapter. You know, we often often 
are, are, are told that we should be careful because familiarity often breeds contempt. It's one of the most well-known passages, I think, in the Bible. But it says there in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ up, up unto all and upon all of them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, do we realize what that means when it means, what it means when it says all have sinned? You know, I often when I speak to soldiers, I try and explain to them why sin is so grievous. You know, sin is grievous not always just because of what we've done, but it's grievous because of who we did it against. You know, I sometimes try and use this analogy, analogy to explain it to soldiers. I say to them, it's something I've heard from somebody else. It's not, not, it hasn't originated with me, but it's a good, good example. You know, I sometimes say to them, when, when I go home in the evening and I've got a bit of a sweet tooth and I open the fridge and there I see a chocolate and I take the chocolate and I eat the chocolate without thinking about whose it might be, if I found out a little bit later that it belonged to Sandrina, my daughter, you know, there's going to be a little bit of a tantrum. There's going to be a little bit of upsetness, but there's not much that Sandrina can do against me, isn't it? I'm a dad. I'm a lot bigger than her, so she can't wrestle me to the ground yet. Maybe it will all be repercussions one day when I'm old and, you know, she's taking care of me, so I need to be careful. But I always say to her, I might go live with a baby sister if, it, if, if she's not going to be nice with me, uh, nice to me. But... Move on a little bit now. Say that chocolate actually belonged to my wife. You know, then it would be an entire different situation, isn't it? She's got a little bit more authority, and I might find myself sleeping on the couch that night. So it's the same deed, but the authority and status of the person has gone up a little bit. So imagine now I took that chocolate out of a shop, and I did not pay for it. I could end up in prison. Imagine I, in my context, who can get, go into a military base, decide that I'm going to take some of the, you know, classified documents and sell it to the Chinese. If this was a different country, I could face execution. You know, so the deed in and of itself remained the same. But the power and authority of the person against whom you committed that wrong has grown. And you know, when you and I sin against each other, yes, we do, we, we harm one another. But first and foremost, it is God who said, thus says the Lord. It's God who's given the commands, and therefore we have sinned against the holy God. And brothers and sisters, if you and I have to repay our sin against the infinitely holy God, how can a finite being ever pay that which an infinite, almighty, all-holy God demands of us? We can never exhaust that payment. We would spend an eternity trying to pay off the debt. And we cannot do it. That's why we needed the infinite God himself to come and deal with our sin so that we may put our hope in him and be forgiven of this terrible debt that each and every one of us have, have, have made through our lives. You know, I was uh, <coughs> excuse me, talking to a soldier who I was studying with I was studying through the book of Romans from him. He was a, 
He was a guy who was actually bigger than me, um, uh, ex-para, Parabat, who's transferred to the Rimi. He was a corporal. And uh, I met him one day. I spent, I spent the, one of the difference between scripture readers and, 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 and chaplains, actually, are the fact that scripture readers have served as regular soldiers before going into ministry. Now, I myself served about a year in the infantry and then seven years in the Army Air Corps before I went into ministry. But uh, this, this guy came from the Parabats. I spent a bit of time there as well. So I was immediately drawn to him, started talking to him. And, you know, eventually I asked him if he wanted to start reading through the Bible with me. And we started reading through the Bible. We started in Romans. And I could remember by the time we got to Romans 3, he said to me, and, you know, I don't think he was mocking. He, I don't think he was mocking God. He was just a young man who was very strong, very independent, and wanted to save the whole world. And as I started talking to him about the consequences of sin, he leaned over to me and he said, Tian, why don't Jesus just leave people alone to live their lives? And I, I, said, I said to him, do you know what you're saying? Do you know what would happen in this world if God didn't restrain us from being as bad as we could be? And I said, I said to him, what do you mean by leave us alone? He said, well, you've told me that Jesus is going to come back to judge the living and the dead. You know, if he comes back to judge the living and the dead, I think I will go up to him and say, Jesus, just leave people alone. I said to him, Roland, you have no idea what you're saying. If you go before this holy God, you will max like you will melt like a wax figurine. You would have no ability to speak unless God gives you the power to speak. That is why we need Christ. For in and of, our, in and of ourselves, none of us can stand before the holiness of God. We need something drastic to change before we are able to come before this throne of grace, which we have done so tonight already. What a privilege don't we have as believers to pray for one another, to intercede for one another, to come before the throne of God? It is amazing, isn't it? Especially when we consider the, our, our, our fallen nature. Now think of the price of sin. Let me, let me read something for you. I was thinking, how can I illustrate this? But one of my favorite authors is a Puritan called John Flavel. <coughs> and... And in his first volume, he wrote, he wrote a couple of sermons explaining various doctrines. But in his first volume, he wrote a sermon on the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. And he focused on various passages in Isaiah through the sermon. If you, ever, you can actually download this, this material free if you wanted to read this material. It's very good. But... In his sixth inference example that he used to try and communicate what he just went through, he tried to communicate to us the price that Jesus paid for us. And he had the following to say. Let me read this for you. He says here, so it's John Flavel saying, Hence judge, how reasonable is it that believers should embrace the hardest terms of obedience unto Christ, who complied with such hard terms for their salvation. They were hard and difficult terms indeed, on which Christ received you from the Father's hand. It was, as you have heard, to pour out his soul unto death, 
are not to enjoy a soul from you and I. You, yeah, you may suppose the Father to say when driving this bargain with Christ for you, for you, you may suppose that the Father had the following to say. My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and lie, now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And thus Christ returned and said, O my Father, such is my love too and my pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after reckoning with them. At my hand shall thou require it. I will rather cho choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer, suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. And the father replied, But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abasement. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. And then the son's final, uh, final return is this. Content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it proves a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverishes all my riches, empties all my treasures, yet I, I am content to undertake it. And this he takes from Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 where it says, Though he was rich yet for your sake, he becomes poor. And he doesn't stop there. He actually challenges his con congregation in a tremendous way by saying, Now blush, you ungrateful believers. Oh, let shame cover your faces. Judging yourself now, had Christ deserved that you should stand with him for trifles? That you should shrink at a few pity difficulties and complain, this is too hard to do or that is too harsh for me to endure? Oh, if you knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in this, his wonderful condescension for you, you could never do it. And isn't that true? If we focus on all that Christ has done for us, then we as believers should be those who are ready to face the hardest terms for our Savior. Whatever it takes, may we glorify His name in all that we do. But look what this passage does now. It presents this, 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 this um, damnation upon them, the fact that they have fallen by their iniquities, but God presents them with hope. He says, take with you word and turn to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. We have heard countless sermons on turning to the Lord 
But in this context, it is really unique because actually in the sacrificial system that the Jews had, they were required to bring something for a sacrifice. They were to bring an animal that they may be cleansed by the blood that would be spilled. But in this context, suddenly we see something different. We see that the people are told to bring their words. There's this emphasis upon their heart, heart and the change of their nature and their countenance to God. They are called to genuine repentance, to a, to a change of their heart so that they may turn to the Savior, the one who has been promised in the previous chapter, the Messiah, will deliver them from all their sin. They are admonished to use their words. But how often, brothers and sisters, have we not used empty words? How many times do we come to the Lord and say, Lord, if you help me with this, then I'll start praying more. Or Lord, if you sustain me in this, then I'll start reading the Bible and I'll start reaching out to people. You know, or maybe, maybe you go through a difficulty and you, you say, Lord, I will now start going, and going to, to, to fellowship and having communion with your saints. Oh, we need to be so careful of using empty words before God. I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Pastor took us through Matthew 7. Go with me to Matthew 7 quickly again. I just want to remind us of a couple of verses there. Repetition is always good for us. But in verse 20, um, verse 21, the Lord says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven will enter in. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in Thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many, many wonderful works. And then will I proclaim unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. You know, I can remember another soldier I, I witnessed to, another guy I studied through Romans with. I met him in, 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 the, in a cafeteria one day, and we started having a conversation. And... The conversation led to the point where we started reading the Bible to, to, together. Initially, when I said to this guy, oh, I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as, as my God and my Savior, he said, well, I also believe in a God. And, and the God that I believe in is a God called Source. And he started telling me of all these out-of-body experiences and stuff that he had in Afghanistan. And at first I thought somebody was putting him up to this to make a joke with the scripture reader. But ultimately I, I, I became aware that he was serious about all these things. And I eventually challenged him. I, I, I said to him, well, if you think your God is God and I think my God is God, then why don't we go and read the word of my God and see how that bears up against your understanding? And he took up the challenge and, you know, by the time we read through the first chapter of Romans, he was gripped. He actually said to me, Tian, I cannot deny the reality that those words are speaking into my life. And we actually studied over several, several months. We studied up to about Romans chapter, chapter 11, I think we got to there. And he, he, he went away one afternoon. I had another scripture reader training with me. And after we were in that, that chapter, he went away and he said, you know, I, I really feel convicted by what you said. 
And I think I want to give my life to the Lord. And I said to him, well, what you need to go do is you need to go to your, to your room and you need to come before God. This is not something that I can do for you. You need to repent. You need to come to the Lord. And he went away. And he, he did, he, 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 he was, we agreed that he would come on the Wednesday. In the army on Wednesdays, you've got sports afternoon. So at about three o'clock, they're done. And he came to my office <coughs> and uh, we, start, we started talking. And, and, and he, said, he said to me and the other scripture reader, he said, brothers, I think I've become a believer. I've put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, I don't know, normally I would rejoice when somebody says this, but the things we spoke of, there, there were so many things that he engaged in, so many things that, you know, you would hear it and you'd say, that's evil. And, and I just thought there would be a little bit more of a contrite response, a little bit more of a repentant reality. And, and it, it seemed very superficial what he said to me. And I said to him, brother, please forgive me. I don't want to take your word, your, your word for, for granted. I, I, I just want to make sure... That if you have turned to the Lord, that you've done it in the fullness of your hearts and that you've not just used empty words. I said to him, can I read one more passage with you? And I took him here to Matthew 7 and we read through this, this, this very first verses that we just read. You know, we'd hardly completed when he stamped his fist on the table and said to me, your God is not God, my God is God. And you know, the, the, whole, the whole conversation just ch changed like that. We... We ministered to that guy. That was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We ministered to that guy till about 11 that evening. Me and the other scripture reader went. Totally exhausted. Um, pleaded with him. It was, it was his third last day in camp. So he just had a few more days. I said to him, please, will you come back on Friday before you leave? So we can just talk one more time. He came back. He was still firm in his stance. And he, he moved on. He eventually moved, left the army. About three, four years later, after this, I had a phone call from him in which he said to me, Tian, I just wanted to let you know that I'm now following the Lord Jesus Christ with all of my heart. You know, so I, I think it's important as believers that we look and make sure that when people turn to Christ, that they understand who the Christ is that they're turning to. Isn't it? You know, how many different versions of Jesus isn't there in the world? How many different views is there not in, 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 in Islam, in, in, in Mormonism, in Jehovah's Witnesses? All of these people have a version of Jesus. But it's not the biblical revelation of the Christ that has saved you and me from our sin. So when we turn to the Lord, we need an understanding of who the Lord is. And we see, we see here a little bit of that reality, isn't it? In the second part of that verse, when it says and focuses on the nature of this turning. Look again, look again at that verse. Let me just go back to it quickly. Um, Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. Here's that emphasis on, be, on, on, on taking away all the iniquity. Is that not what we saw in David's life? When, when, when he sinned against the Lord and the prophet Nathan came to convict him of his sin, immediately he said, against the Lord did I sin. 
And we know he proclaimed in Psalm 51, isn't it? When he shares that wonderful psalm with us. And he said, against the Lord and the Lord only have I sinned. Washed me, cleanse me from my iniquity. Take away all my iniquity from me. You know, is that what, what should not be the reality in every believer's heart? Lord, take away all the iniquity. Don't let me hold on to anything. If there's any sin that is with you, rid yourself. Turn to the Lord and say, Lord, help me, for I am weak and unable to do it in myself. And that's the, that, that's the wonderful thing about this passage. Not only does, does the word of God turn these people who had a sacrificial system and all these methods around them, he turns them away from that. He tells them to use their words so that they can be sincere. But more than that, he gives them the words to use. Isn't that gracious and amazing of our God? You know, when you as a believer stand in, say, I don't even know what to say. Lord, I want to pray, but I don't know. I've heard of all these men that pray for two, three hours a day. I can't do much more than 10 minutes, and I don't know what else to say. Lord, go to the Word of God and read through the Psalms and just pray through them. God has given us the words that we need to pray. And what does that lead these people to? It leads them from a place where they were always hoping in their systems and their ways and the things that they could do, leads them to a place where they now say, Asher shall not save us. And that's unique because that's exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to go to Assyria. They wanted to implore the help of Assyria to protect them so that they could have the strength of the Assyrian army. The very people who would eventually come and destroy them. They said, Asher will not save us. They acknowledged that there is no salvation in the power of man. Man is unable to save. And that leads us finally up to what... The Lord says in verse 4, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger <coughs> is turned away from them. The Lord is the one that will do this work. You know, we know that the New Testament declares it clearly for us. When it says, salvation is to be found in no other name. There is no name under under, under the heavens by which a man can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. And why is it that we can only be sa saved by the name of Jesus Christ? Because he is the God-man who came to bear our sin. Brothers and sisters, often when I engage with soldiers, I, t I, I tell them that in Christianity we've got the greatest of, of, of trilemmas. We have the Bible which is declared to be the word of truth. If it's the word of truth, I say to them, if it's the word of truth, it should in no way be able to contradict itself. Would you agree with that? Because if it contradicts itself, it can no longer be the word of truth. There's contradictions in it. I said, now that is what I profess. And I'm now going to show you, because often they come to me and say, the Bible's full of contradictions. And I say to them, okay, I'm going to show you the biggest contradictions ever that you could find in the Bible. I said to them, turn with me to Psalm 5. And I normally go to verse 5. Turn with me to Psalm 5. Let's, let's do exactly what I do with the soldiers. won't take long. I know we're, we're getting close to the end, but I'll, I'll, I'll be brief with this. I said, go with me to Psalm 5, if I can find it. I say, look at verse 5. What, what does it say there? I say to them, now remember, this is the word of truth. You're dealing with the word of truth. 
we need we need to be we 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 cannot see any contradictions but i'm going to show you some contradictions i said look what it says in verse 5 the foolish shall not stand in in thy sight thou hates all workers of iniquity okay if this is the word of truth the word of god it says god hates everyone who sins it sounds a little bit contradictory to some of the bumper stickers we see isn't it God loves the sinner but hates the sin. But anyway, we'll leave it there. We won't comment on that. But this is a this is a verse that's in the Bible. Okay, I'm not I'm not trying to interpret it. We're just reading it. I say, okay, now turn with me to Proverbs, Proverbs 17. Follow me there. And look at verse 15. It says there. He that justifies the wicked and he that condemns the just, even they both are abominations to the Lord. Okay, so here we have now two scriptural truths that are presented to us. The one, God hates everyone who commits iniquity. The other one, God abhors anyone who justifies the wicked or condemns the righteous. So that's the two truths that we are dealing with now. Now, I say to him, We've just been there, but let's turn back to, to Romans chapter 3 again. So turn, turn with me to Ro- Romans chapter 3. I said, look at, look at what the passage has to say here. We read it earlier. But now the righteousness of God without the law is made manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no distinctions. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified. So yes, the sinners, those who have fallen short of the glory of God. Now it says they are being justified. What did we just read in, in Proverbs chapter 70? That those who justify the wicked are abomination for the God. So before God. So how is the... How is the wicked being justified yet? They're being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So it's Christ Jesus who justifies the wicked. Now the question is, does Christ Jesus become an abomination before God? Is this not a a tremendous contradiction? No, it is the gospel. Because as the Lord Jesus Christ hung upon the cross, He faced the wrath and justice of God for our sins so that you and I can be set free. While we were enemies with God, at the right time, God saved you and me through the sacrifice of his sin. See, brothers and sisters, there is no contradiction in Scripture. There is nothing like that. There is only the truth of God revealed unto fallen men. And that's why we need to study it and embrace it. And that's why we need to realize that God is the one who saves. He's the one. He's the one through Jesus Christ to declare, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes through to the Father except through me. He's the one to whom Paul refers when he says to, 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 to Titus in chapter 3, not by works of righteousness are you saved, Not by works of righteousness, which 
we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration of the Holy Ghost. It's the work of God in our lives. And brothers and sisters, if if you're here tonight and you have not put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, then there's nothing standing in your way. If you have a desire to follow him, I will say this. Only the Spirit of God can put that desire upon your heart. If you have professed to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you delight in his word and you delight in fellowship with his people and you look forward unto the day when he comes and redeems all things unto himself, then you know that you are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and God has done that tremendous work in your life. So brothers and sisters, let's do what this passage said in every context and look again to our Savior that we may be blessed, blessed because of what He has done for us and moved to do the same thing to others by declaring this wonderful truth to them in every opportunity that we have. Let's pray before I give back to Brother David. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful gospel that you've given us, Lord. It's something that no man could have ever thought of, that God would become man, that God would come down from heaven and live as one of his creatures so that that righteous and perfect life may be presented to us who have put our hope And trust in the Savior, Lord. That he hung upon that cross so that final transaction could be made. That the wrath of the Father could fall upon him. So that our sins may be forgiven. That God may be just in saying that he didn't just sweep our sins under the carpet. But came himself to bear our iniquities upon him. Lord, may this reality ever sink into our hearts that we may be blessed, that we may be fully equipped for the works of righteousness. Lord, works which you prepare for us, works which you give us the strength to do. Oh Lord, these things we can never comprehend, but we look to you and give you thanks in all things. In Jesus' name we pray.